Last week I spent a significant amount of time uh, talking about Judah in light of the larger scope of Scripture, and I made application for us today that we need to trust God in the good and in the bad because He is sovereign over them both. And so I just want to remind you about what I said last week, and that is that God's greatest desire for us is not our temporal blessing. That is maybe just only an immediate happiness, a a receiving of everything that we want on our wish list, a a good job, you know, good, good food, good people, good life. What we should understand is that God is a good Father and that everything that He does is in line with what He wants most in us. And what is it that He wants most in us? What He wants to see most in us is our growth in godliness. What I call spiritual success. And that may not sound very appealing. You know, we would like to see our Heavenly Father want earthly riches for us or good health or great job, great relationships. But that's not ultimately what God is looking for. What He wants is for us to grow in godliness. And And I think that it's hard to accept that sort of thing for several reasons. Number one, spiritual success doesn't come instantaneously. We don't get to move to a place of spiritual maturity and and, and have all of this this, uh, satisfaction before God in a a good way. We don't get it all right away. Secondly, it's hard because spiritual success requires work on our part and it requires faith. It it requires us to believe in something that we can't really see immediately. Sometimes we don't see it for years, the results of what, what we've done, what we've just sung about, the trusting and obeying, that we step out and we make a step of obedience because God said to do it, but... But it doesn't really make sense in the short term, and we don't even see how it works out necessarily in the long term. And maybe not even in this lifetime we'll be able to see the fruit of our obedience. But we do it. And that's the nature of spiritual success. And as you read through the Scriptures, you're going to find over and over again that God is working to change your corrupt heart and mine. And He does it through this slow process called spiritual growth. A very slow process, but it is uh, guaranteed in the life of a believer, a true believer. Now, if you pull the the famous celebrity preachers out there, the popular pastors out there, they'll tell you, you want to get to a place of spiritual maturity, let me give you this four-step process, four easy steps to becoming spiritually mature. Or, uh, you know, just come to our service, I'll give you five steps in how how to to be right with God and that sort of thing. Well, the Christian life is not quite that easy. It requires some simple steps that is simple to comprehend. We believe what God says and we do it, but it's really quite hard because it's spirit-empowered faith that often is coupled with setbacks. If you've tried this for a long period of time, you know what I'm talking about. It requires godly, motivated work, and and there seems to be an obstacle at every turn. And um, but but when we get this point, that it doesn't happen overnight, 
and that, that, it, that this is what God is ultimately wanting to do in our lives, then we're really going to, um, to experience some, some real joy in the Christian life. Um, I think Joseph understood this. I think he was on the, the same page with God as far as what God was doing. That God was sovereignly in control over all these things. Joseph was a victim. I mean, he, he wasn't responsible for his own uh, sale into slavery. He wasn't responsible for his imprisonment, as we'll see here. Um, but he recognized that God was in it and that God was working. I'm not sure what you were like as a kid, unless you are a kid right now. I know exactly what you're like. But, but if you were rebellious and, and defiantly independent of your parents, uh, then you probably, if you had good parents, you were probably opposed by them. Uh, and, and you found it hard as a child. You had a rough childhood. I had stretches of times where that would happen as well, where I would, there would be several periods of time where I would resist my parents because I didn't understand what they were trying to do, why, why they would tell me to do certain things. And so I, I would resist them at times. And, and there was a realization occasionally that, you know what, God's put these parents in place. They've, he's put them over me for a purpose. I don't understand all where they're leading me, why they're leading me in this way, but I'm just going to trust God and obey my parents. And I always didn't do it with the right attitude, but, but when I stopped resisting my parents, then there was some sort of relief because now the pressure wasn't necessarily on me to find my own way. It was really on my parents to make sure that they were leading rightly. I was just simply following God by obeying them. That is, that life became not completely easy, but it became simpler, didn't it? And what I'm saying is that, that if you found yourself resisting God as a Christian, you're going to have a rough life spiritually. And you shouldn't be surprised by that. But when you start to get in line with, where he, with what He's doing, that God's working for my good... He's bringing about these circumstances for my good, and I know that because I have a good and loving Father. And when you start to get on the same page with God and say, you know what, I'm going to stop resisting, then you start to see the promise of Jesus that His yoke is light and His burden is easy. And what He means by that is in comparison to the miserable enslavement of sin. That is, both as an unbeliever and as a believer. Sin is enslaving. It is terrible. And so we have to guard ourselves against it. We need to make sure that we're on the same page with God. And really, this passage is about resisting temptation. And when we're on the same page with God, we're going to resist temptation as we ought to. So let me read this passage, and then we'll break it down and see what God has for us. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he had to uh, all that he did to prosper in his hand, and so Joseph found favor in his sight. 
and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in the house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except for the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Last week we saw that God accomplishes His purposes even through evil people like Judah. This week we're going to see that God grants... Let me start over. God grants success to those who obey. God grants success to those who obey. We see this two times in this passage, at the beginning and the end. First, we see God grants success to Joseph in Potiphar's house. And then we have the middle section. And then we have at the end, God grants success to Joseph in the prison. Right? right? Let's look at this first section here. God grants success to Joseph in Potiphar's house. We had been talking about Judah... Uh, in chapter 38, we talked about Joseph in chapter 37. And so in order for Moses to bring us back to where he wants us to be, he reminds us what happened to Joseph. Verse 1, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. But now he explains a few more details. When the Ishmaelites took Joseph or had bought Joseph, they took him to Egypt. That's where they were heading. And when they made it to Egypt, they put him on Craigslist there and were able to get a, uh, someone to contact them. And that was Potiphar. Potiphar needed a servant. And this probably, uh, Potiphar, when he first hired him or, or bought him, I should say, 
he probably started out as a lowly, lowly servant, doing very little for him. Remember, he's got to earn his trust. He's not going to say, oh, hey, a Hebrew slave, let's, let's make you uh, over my whole household, right? It takes time. In fact, it probably took several years for Potiphar to put his full trust in him to grant him control over the whole house. And so God grants success to, to him. In verses 2 through 6, we see this very clearly. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, notice, so he became a successful man. We could say it this way. Because the Lord was with Joseph, he became a successful man. So how did Joseph become a successful man? Because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. That the source of Joseph's success was God. And notice what his success looked like in these verses. First, Potiphar recognizes that he is blessed by God. Verse 3, Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. This pagan man recognizes God's hand of favor on this believing man. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be shocked by this in any way because this is not the first time a pagan has recognized success in a believer's life. Abimelech recognized success in Abraham's life and Abimelech recognized success in Isaac's life. Um, Laban recognized success in Jacob's life and wanted to have a part of it, you remember? And so that's why he tricked him into working for him and, and ultimately for working for him for, for several more years, 20 years in all. And so Potiphar recognizes that God's hand is upon this man, Joseph. The second way we see Joseph's success is found found in verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, that is Potiphar's, and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Okay. The second way we see his success is by Potiphar making him overseer. And this is no small thing. Remember, this is a foreigner that he doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, knowledge about. He simply bought him off of the, the black market and he comes and starts working in his house. And next thing you know, you see all this, these things that are prospering for Joseph. And he says, you know what, Joseph? What you do is good and right. And I want to put you in charge of the, the entire household. All these people who have served me my whole career... All these people who have been here for years and years and years, you're going to to move ahead of them. And you're going to move all the way to the top. I'm sure there's probably some animosity within the household, but the Lord is blessing him. The third way we see it is in verse 5. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Isn't this amazing? Joseph's success is not just seen in the things that he does, but now it's seen in the life of Potiphar. And this should this should point us back to or remind us of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God promises to Abraham that I will bless those who what? Who bless you. Okay, Potiphar was one fulfillment of that promise to Jacob's grandfather Abraham. Fourth way we see this is found at the beginning of verse 6, and that is that Jacob is unsupervised. He trusts in Jacob so much 
that he does not even supervise him. Look at verse 6. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. Then look down to verse 8. But he refused and said to the master's wife, Behold, with, uh, uh, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Okay, so Joseph is unsupervised. Now, wouldn't it be nice if the passage just stopped here? Okay, Joseph, a man of God, is blessed by God. God is with him, so he gets success. And the, and the passage stops. Or it continues on to verse 39. Look down to, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 41, verse 39. Because between verse 6 and 41:39, you have a great amount of struggle, frustration, trial, we could say. But look at verse 39 of chapter 41. So Pharaoh said, to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Okay, we stop there in verse 6 of chapter 39, or we just cut out that whole section, chapter 39, verse 7, all the way till 41:38, and we just say, Here's the lesson for us. God brings success to His people through prosperity. But the passage doesn't end or continue like we want. It does not... Joseph shows himself to be so good in Potiphar's house that Potiphar puts in a good word to the Pharaoh and now the Pharaoh hires him or buys him off of Potiphar. Now he works for Pharaoh. Next thing you know, he's in command. That's not how it goes, is it? Instead, we have two chapters nearly of difficulty, trial that Joseph experiences and probably times in which he felt as if God were far away. But Joseph stands up in the middle of temptation and trial as we'll see in this difficult section, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. And what we should see in verses 6 through 20, the second part of verse 6 through 20, is that God grants success to Joseph in the midst of temptation. God grants success to Joseph in the midst of temptation. Notice the initial temptation. Look at the last part of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, he was well built and handsome. He was not an eyesore. He was good to look upon. And the initial temptation comes in verse 7. It came about after these events that the master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Joseph, you are so attractive. I want to have a physical, intimate relationship with you. And Joseph recognized that, no, that, that relationship is only designed to be between a husband and a wife. So I'm not going to do that. Look at verse 8. He refuses don't have a whole lot about how he refuses. He, it simply says, but he refused. And then he gives a reason. And I think this reason is very telling and helpful for us when we are enticed by sin. Okay, And I'm not just talking about immoral sin. I'm talking about all types of sin. And the two reasons that he gives is, I don't want to disgrace my master 
and I don't want to disgrace my master. Notice verse 8. Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in the house than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Look at all the things that my master has done for me. He's put me into a very good and a very trustworthy type position, a position that requires trustworthiness, and I'm not going to defy my master. But I think what lies at the heart of his refusal to follow through on what she wants is found at the end of verse 9. And that is, he doesn't want to disgrace his master in heaven. This is what we would expect to read at the end of verse 9. How then could I do this great evil against my master? Speaking of Potiphar. But no, he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? The enticement of sin says this pleasure that is set out in front of you will be worth it. You will enjoy this pleasure and, and it will be worth it for you to fall into this sin or to you to come and embrace this sin. But the truth is, is that enticement of sin always comes with a lie. It always comes with a lie. Life doesn't turn out how we imagined it when we first embraced that sin, does it? And if we think about it, Joseph's enticement would have been, you know what? I can get away with this. I could get away with this if he were enticed in this way and he followed through on it. I can get away with this. I can somehow... Do this and not allow the master to find out. But suppose the master did find out. Where would Joseph end up, do you think? In jail. And whose favor would he have in jail? Not his master's, nor his father's in heaven. You see? The enticement of sin says, no, you're not going to get in trouble for this. You're not going to get caught. Just do it, enjoy it, move on. But I think what lies at the heart of Joseph refusing, why he refused it, is because yes, he didn't want to disgrace his master, Potiphar, but also because mainly, I would say, verse 9, because he didn't want to disgrace his master, God. How could I do this great evil? What a great part of a verse to learn. Okay, this is not even a whole verse, but for you to memorize this last question, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Wouldn't this be a great thing to have in front of us when the temptation of sin is right, in, right there? We say, how could we, disgrace, how could we disgrace our Father? Our problem often when it comes to sin is that we think, you know, it's not that big of a deal for me to do this evil. I mean, who really cares if I sin against God? But for Joseph, this was a big concern of his, and it should be a big concern for ours. How could I sin against the God who's been so gracious to me? And that's how we ought to see our sin, by the way, as a disgrace to our Father. You know, growing up, you probably avoided certain things that your parents told you not to do because you feared, you feared their wrath, their punishment. 
But I hope when you got to the point where you were, you know, late high school, in college, even now, I hope you don't fear that your parents are going to discipline you. And so I don't want to disgrace, I don't want to, to disobey my father's wishes at this point. I'm afraid he's going to discipline me. But now your fear should be one of, and this is a healthy fear, one of, I don't want to disgrace my father. I don't want to lose the relationship that we have. I don't want to see him hurt because of my sin against him. So I'm not going to, to, to do what he doesn't want me to do, okay? or I'm not going to do something that would would harm his reputation because I love my father. And I think that's probably uh, representative of the way our Christian lives should be as well. Early on, yes, we should fear God's wrath for us, that, that we should fear what God would do to us if we sin. And I think that, that negative motivation, I say negative, I mean that God could bring down His wrath on us if we continue in our sin. There should be that negative motivation. You see that even in the book of Hebrews. But, but there should come a point in our lives when we mature spiritually that this is my Father. I, I love my Father. I don't, want to, I don't want to put any barriers between myself and God. And I know that the consequences of these sins will not just last for a moment like the sin does, but they could last a lifetime. And I don't want to mar that relationship. So Joseph's initial temptation was a success for him and that he refused. But what's challenging for Joseph is that this is an ongoing temptation. Notice verse 10. This is persistent. As she spoke to Joseph day after day. I mean, imagine. This woman was probably not unattractive being the wife of such a high-ranking officer. And Joseph could have had her if he wanted to because she wanted him. Day after day, she came back to him and said, Joseph, will you lie with me? Will you come and be with me? And notice verse 10 at the second part, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Joseph didn't didn't give in to the temptation. Well, we have the passage come to a climax really when Joseph enters the house alone in verse 11. And this is a perfect opportunity for her to try to seduce him. If Joseph was going to give in, this was the time because no one was going to find out about it. They were all alone. Obviously, she wouldn't want to disgrace herself before her husband, so Joseph could have given in at this point. Remember, he was concerned about his master and he was concerned about his God. In verse 12, she catches him by his outer garment, his tunic, and she doesn't let go. And she says, Joseph, please, come, lie with me. But instead, he leaves his garment with her and he heads outside. Joseph was faithful to God because he was resisting this temptation. The way that he was faithful to God was he resisted temptation. Now, let's think about this for a second. What kind of reward does Joseph get for overcoming temptation? 
Okay, does he get a higher position? Does his master give him a recognition of valor? Thank you. That was excellent work in the face of adversity. Let me let you in on a little secret. It's not much of a secret at all. Sometimes the reward for resisting temptation is humiliation, scorn, a loss of position, harm to relationships, and a life of difficulty. That's spiritual success sometimes. And this is what Joseph receives. You see, resistant temptation doesn't often bring visible, immediate rewards or results. You know, it's not like on Wheel of Fortune when you pick the right letter and you hear the ding sound when the letter turns for you, right? You don't hear any sounds. You don't get any applause a lot of times. You resist temptation and sometimes no one ever finds out about it. And sometimes the people who do find out about it scorn you. And that's part of living by faith. God, I know what You have told me to do is better than the pleasures of this sin that will last only for a season. Well, it only gets worse for Joseph in verses 13-20 through 20 as far as his present circumstances. He is falsely accused. We see how slimy of a person this wife of Potiphar really is when she first convinces the rest of the servants of Joseph's alleged evil, evil in verses 13 through 15. She calls all the men, other men of the house together and, said, and makes up the story about him. And notice what she says here in verse 14. See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. Who is she talking about there? Who brought in the Hebrew to make sport of us? She's already turned on her own husband, hasn't she? Potiphar brought this man in to us because he didn't take us seriously. Me and all of you servants. He, he put him into a position of great power because he didn't take you seriously. She quickly gets them on her side. And so she says, she's, you know, he, he wanted to lie with me, but I wouldn't let him, so I screamed, and so on. And she maintains or holds on to the, the tunic until her husband comes home. And notice how she changes her tune just a little bit. Notice verse 17. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of not us now, not me and the whole household, but he came in to make sport of me. He didn't take me seriously. And I'm putting this on you, Potiphar. Potiphar was probably put in a difficult circumstance wanting to please his wife and not really knowing all the details and... And he unwisely, or foolishly we could say, imprisons Joseph without a fair trial. And here's just an aside from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, that the first to state his case usually sounds right, but then another person comes along. That's Proverbs 18, 17. Okay, so point is, don't jump to conclusions when we don't know the whole story. We, we, we need to see it from both sides, right? And Potiphar didn't do that. And so he felt betrayed. And because he jumped to this wrong conclusion, his anger burned 
against him, and he throws him into jail. This is the Pharaoh's jail, uh, potentially a nicer jail than, than just a commoner's jail. Remember, Joseph's going to be visited or have two other um, inmates with him, uh, the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker as well. So it's not clear whether they're here to await their execution or what, but, but the point is that Joseph is sent to jail. But God is still there. God is still there. Notice verses 21 through 23. God grants success to Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. Notice the source of Joseph's success in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 2 again. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And we know that that immediately resulted, or over time resulted in, Joseph taking over the household of Potiphar. That is, he was the overseer. Here, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And what did that look like? It means that God extended His kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And apparently over time, he rose to a position where he was in charge of everyone in the prison. Where the chief jailer could kind of sit down, his feet up, and and just trust that Joseph was going to take care of everything. In fact, notice here he's unsupervised again. Verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever the Lord did, or excuse me, whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. God grants success to those who obey. God grants spiritual success to those who obey. And what, what I'm trying to show you from this passage is that it's not just when he's in charge over a lot of people that God's granting him success, but that while he was resisting temptation, verses 6 through 19, God was also granting him success. Now, it didn't feel like it. The results didn't match what you would expect success to look like. But that was success as well. And God's granting him success here. And so, how do we, how do we resist temptation like Joseph? Because God is ultimately working for our good, our greatest good, which is to be more like Jesus Christ, to be conformed into the image of Christ. And if God's doing that, and He wants us to resist temptation, to put it off and put on a spirit of righteousness, then how do we do that? How do we resist temptation when we're being bombarded with, seemingly from every side? And I'd like to give you three ways in which we can do that from the life of Joseph. Number one, I'm going to call this one resisting in training. Resist in training. Resist before the temptation comes. Now, here's a little bit of a trick question. When did Joseph resist the temptation to lie with Potiphar's wife? Okay, he definitely had to do it right when she approached him. Okay, and I would call that a a, a re-resisting. Okay, but I think that Joseph actually resisted a long time ago, and he had in his mind that. And you know, you know why I say that? Because of verse nine. How can I do this sin against God? Joseph had in his mind 
He had already made a covenant with himself that I'm not going to resist in this specific temptation because I love my God so much. Job did the same thing in a very similar uh, sort of sin that he was trying to resist. Chapter 31, verse 1. He says, I, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. So I ask you, when do you decide not to click on the racy advertisement on the internet website that you're at? When do you decide? You definitely need to decide right when it comes up, but, but I would suggest to you that you need to decide a long time before. Because often when we get to the temptation and we haven't decided yet, we often give in. Joseph knew the dangers. He had thought through the dangers that I will bring my life to ruin if I give in to a temptation like this, not knowing that she specifically would, would tempt him in this way. And so he guarded himself against these dangers by seeing things in proper perspective. I don't want to disgrace my Master and I don't want to disgrace my God. So what I'm saying is that the battle for overcoming temptation is not one on the battlefield. It's one in training. It's one in training. My brother was uh, served in the U.S. Marine Corps for several years, and he became one of the top marksmen in his platoon. And uh, the, the mantra that, that his officers would teach him uh, during training was, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. And what they meant by that was that you need to remain calm, because if you start fumbling around trying to go really fast, you're actually not going to be very smooth, and you're not going to be very fast. So go slow, get it right, and you'll be fast. Now, the time for my brother to get good at reloading his weapon was not when he got to Iraq. And all of a sudden, he comes upon an enemy, or an enemy comes upon him. Now I've got to hurry up and figure out how to reload really fast, right? When's the time for him to learn how to reload that weapon? It's way back here in Camp Lejeune, in training. I need to do this over and over and over again so I get it right. So that when the temptation comes, I'm ready. Okay, when, when the enemy comes, I'm ready to reload. And the reason I use this illustration is because I want you to know that the victory in the battlefield of temptation is not won or lost when you get to the battlefield. It's won in training. So I would suggest to you that the reason that Joseph avoided the big sins, the reason that you will avoid the big sins is because you're good at avoiding the little sins. You know, we as Christians can go our whole lives without really doing any horribly monstrous sins. And we may think we're okay. But if you think you're exempt from those types of sin, then, then take heed lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 The way that you overcome those big temptations, those big sins, is you have to be training. Okay, That starts in the mind. You need to recognize what's going on here. What is really 
at the heart of this battle. What could be lost if you give in? Say for my brother on the battlefield, if I don't know how to reload my weapon, I could lose my life. I could lose the life of one of my soldiers that is with me. We don't see the dangers that there are to our sins. And and I've said this often, that our sin affects more than just us. My sin affects more than just me. My sin affects you. My sin affects my family. And if we don't recognize that, then, then people can be hurt and can be spiritually damaged. Joseph recognized that he didn't want to sin against his master or against his God. And so that means that the way that you're going to stop this big temptation that comes against you is you need to start winning the little battles. Okay, the little ones, like the little battles back in training. When you're sitting at home, when you're thinking about things you ought not to be thinking about, when you're participating in things, or when you're asked to to participate in something that you're thinking about. And if you have a specific problem with the moral sins, then I would suggest to read through Proverbs chapter 5 through 7. Proverbs 5 through 7. And be reminded of the danger of immorality's consequences. Alright, so the first way we resist temptation based on the life of Joseph is we resist in training. We resist before the temptation ever comes. The second way is that we recognize that God is on our side. Recognize that God is on our side. Is God with you? How can you know if God is with you or not? Let me give you two opposing sets of circumstances and try to help point you to the the correct answer of how you can know if God is with you or not. In one year's time, you get a promotion at work. You also settle a long-standing conflict with a family member that had plagued you for a long time. Your health is the best it has ever been. You have more money than you've ever had in your lifetime. Throughout that period, can you say, that one-year period, can you say that God is with you? All right, the very next year, you lose your job. Your siblings turn on you and despise you more than ever. Your closest friend dies in a car accident. You find out that you have stage 4 cancer. And during that period of time, can you say that God is with you? Now, the reason I brought up those two illustrations is because I want you to see if you just look at those circumstances, it's hard to get the right answer, isn't it? Because circumstances are shifting all the time, aren't they? And so if we look at our circumstances alone, I'm saying not with the the lens of Scripture, but if we look at our circumstances alone, God's with me over here. God's not with me over here. So how does a Joshua who just conquered the land of Canaan and Job who just lost everything, how do these two men determine whether or not God is with them or not? And the answer is not to look at their circumstances alone. 
but to look to what God has said. What does God say about being with His children in times of prosperity? Is God there? What does God say about that? He says, yes, I'm always with you. In fact, Jesus' very name, Matthew 1.22, is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And Jesus said at the end of His life, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you. Okay, so in those times of prosperity, you can count on it that I am there. What about this most recent trial? Is God there? Doesn't feel like it. Feels like He's far, far away. And the way that we know God is there is we go to His Word. Is God there in times of trouble? Is God there in times of trial? Does God care? And the answer, of course, is yes. He's always with us. In fact, He's using these difficult times and these prosperous times to do the same thing. To bring us to a place of spiritual maturity. Are we becoming more like Jesus Christ? Hey, this big bank account that I've given you, these great relationships, that's me. And hey, this here, this difficult circumstances that I allowed to come into your life, that's me. I'm bringing it here for a purpose, though. I'm not doing it to punish you. I'm not doing it to harm you. I'm doing it because I love you and I want what's best for you. And so perish the thought that pops into your mind that says, I obeyed God in the midst of this trial. I did it. I resisted the temptation, but what do I have to show for it? Nothing. Trials, resisting temptation often results in no immediate rewards. And sometimes worse. Sometimes it's actually opposite. We feel like we're being opposed when we resist temptation. But the Scriptures tell us that we're not alone. God is faithful. Okay, God is faithful. He cares and He's there. So recognize that the battle is won in training. Recognize that God is on your side. And then finally, recognize that God has something greater for you. That God has something greater for you. He has something greater than the temporal pleasure of this temptation that it supposedly has to offer. And so that means we need to fear the Lord. Fear missing... You know, our biggest fear is, you know, if I don't give in to this temptation, I'm going to miss out on something pleasurable. And God says, I've got something much greater for you. Set that aside. And let me show you something much, much greater. Now, you may not get it in this lifetime. But do you believe me? Do you believe that I have something better for you? And that means that we as Christians need to have a long-term perspective like Joseph did. Joseph recognized God has chosen me for a specific task and I'm going to trust that God's promise to me even if it includes the hardships that I have to go through in, in prison and being estranged from my brothers, I'm going to trust God that His 
pleasures are better than the pleasures that are offered in this sin. And that ultimately, that, that God is using your temptation. He's got something greater for you, and it is for your holiness. In the larger picture, we see that the jail doesn't seem like a very good, very good set of circumstances, but actually it is the pathway to Joseph's ultimate success in this world, being second in command in all of Egypt. And for you and me, that means the mistreatment that you receive from others is merely a means to an end. Keep in mind what God wants most in your life. He wants to change you. He wants to change me. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord Spirit. God wants to see you changed through the Word of God. Colossians 1, verses 9-12 through 12, that we should be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we will walk in a manner worthy of God. God wants us to enjoy the pleasures that, are, that only come from Him when we trust and when we obey. The one verse we didn't sing of that song, verse 4, is one of my favorites. We never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay for the favor He shows and the joy He bestows are for them who trust and obey. Those joys are for you and me when we trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, help us to resist temptation. We want to be pleasing to You, our Father. We don't want to disgrace You. You've given us so much. You have brought us out of slavery to our own sin. Why would we ever want to go back into that? Help us, Lord, we pray. Use the circumstances in our life to wake us up and to show us that You are God, but ultimately use Your Word to strengthen us and to shape us, to mold our minds, Help us to resist in training. And we pray that when, there is, when the temptation is strong, that You will show that there is always a way of escape. Help us to do so, Lord. You know how hard it is for us when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. Help us not to defy You in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.